From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Woman, life, freedom. Down with the dictator and no to the Islamic Republic. These slogans have been chanted by anti-government protesters in Iran for nearly two months since the heart-wrenching death of the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman Gina Mahsa Amini in police custody. Iranian protesters remain steadfast in calling for the downfall of the regime despite the regime's deadly crackdown in which its security forces have been using firearms with live ammunition, metal pellets, and tear gas. According to Oslo-based group Iran Human Rights Organization, as of November 5th, the regime's forces have killed at least 304 people, including 41 children, and more than 15,000 people have been detained. The regime has also invested hundreds of millions of dollars in facial recognition and surveillance tools and Internet technologies to monitor the population block or slow down the internet, suppress dissent, and cover up its widespread violent suppression of the protest. I spoke with Ami Rashidi, the director of the Digital Rights and Security at Mion Group, about the government's internet censorship technologies and how they can track and control protesters' activities. Amir, unlike the 2019 protests, the Iranian regime's approach to disrupting the Internet appears to have changed. Instead of a nationwide shutdown, the regime has opted for a more kind of a rolling shutdown in areas where the street protest is. It has slowed down the Internet to make it more difficult, of course, for people to upload videos and communicate with each other and with the outside world. Can you give us a general sense of how this new approach is being implemented and what has made this shift possible? The mobile Internet is usually shut down, from what I understand, between 4 p.m. and midnight, while the speed of the Internet at homes could also be slowed down. Yes, that's correct. In the past, almost past 10 years, Iran invests a lot on its internet project, something that they call it National Information Network, NIN, which is basically a smaller internet. Imagine that you have a network inside your office. All the computer inside of your office building, they are connected to each other. They all can communicate with each other. But if you want to go out of this office, you want to go to, let's say, your co-worker who is working in the next building, you need to pass the gateway, right? That's a gateway Iran maintained and implemented for getting access to the internet, to the real internet, global internet. So what we have now is a local computer network, which is by definition, we would call it intranet, that all the services are provided on that intranet for Iranian people. And then if you want to go outside of this local network and get access to the international services, you need to pass through that gateway, which is under control by the Iranian government. So they have completed building the infrastructure for controlling Internet locally in Iran? They successfully created that infrastructure. But in order that infrastructure to be fully functional, 
and fully operative, that infrastructure itself is not enough. They need to have applications such as search engine, um, email services, online streaming services, messaging app, everything that you know, every ordinary users on internet daily base is working. On that front, still Iran is struggling to create strong and useful services. That's one issue. The second issue is because of the lack of trust in the government, no one really used those services that already are in place. No one really used national search engine or national email service or national messaging app. That's something that I would call the last line of defense. If the Iranian government successfully managed to get Iranian to use those services, that's the point that I would say the fight is over. There is nothing really we can do. From what I understand, the Iranian regime has devised some financial incentives for people to turn to this so-called national internet as opposed to connecting to the outside via VPNs. True. So again, why people in Iran, they are not using it because they don't trust in the government. So what Iranian government is doing, because obviously they are not capable of fixing that trust issue, right? So Mm -hmm. what they're doing is giving subsidy to those services that are hosted inside the country, something that technically we would call it violation of net neutrality. But how the system is working, let me tell you with the example. Imagine you want to watch a video on YouTube and then you want to watch the exact same video with the exact same quality on Aparat, which is Iranian YouTube. If you pay $1 for watching that video on YouTube, you would pay half a dollar to watch the exact same video on Aparat. This is how the Iranian government trying to encourage people. I mean, it's very important to understand there is a huge economic crisis right now in Iran, right? So this is how the Iranian government is encouraging people to use local services, not the international services, because it's cheaper and it's faster. Talk about how the selective shutdown, as I said, in areas where there is a street action being implemented by the Iranian regime right now. What are they doing? How are they blocking people's access to the internet and their ability to communicate both with each other and with people outside of Iran? So what we saw in this recent round of protests, basically the first four weeks, mainly we had mobile data shutdown, meaning Internet on mobile was not available, so people could not get into the internet, but the local service was working. And usually that kind of mobile curfew, for example, that usually would have started, as you said at the beginning of the, uh, this conversation, 4 p.m. local time up to midnight usually. And then they were heavily disrupted home services, landline services for accessing the internet. And we had two days total blackout, October 10 and 11, in city of Sanandaj, only in city of Sanandaj. That's how the shutdown is expanded. Usually, first, they start shutting down the mobile data because they believe they can control the protesters because people, they cannot communicate, they cannot mobilize. And then when the protest is expanding, the area of mobile data shutdown is going to expand. If the security service feel they, they cannot control it. They need to impose kind of more radical internet shutdown. Then they would shut down the landline home connection. But as still the local service national information network still is working. And at the end of the day, if they believe 
that is not enough, something that we saw, as I said, October 10 and 11 in city of Sanandad, then they would go for the full blackout. Even the local network would be shut down. Currently, now we are speaking, we don't have shutdown in Iran. But what do we have is a very aggressive move by the Iranian government to block access to the international services. Many services of Google are blocked right now in Iran. Almost all of search engines, with the exception of Google, are blocked in Iran. Even games are blocked in Iran because apparently these new generation, they wanted to communicate for the protest, right? So they would go on games and use the chat feature, chat option on games to communicate with each other. That's why we are seeing for the first time ever that the Iranian government even blocking games with the chat option. So what is working right now? There is a word in Iran that people are using to describe the internet. They would call it filternet. Mm-hmm. What is working is filternet, actually. So, so obviously, all the local services are working. Access to the Gmail and Google.com is possible, but Gmail is heavily disrupted. All search engines are blocked. Only, as I said, Google.com is not blocked. Android stores, Google Play, it was blocked, but it got unblocked last week. Almost all the meta products, Instagram, WhatsApp, all are blocked. Almost nothing is really, no free internet is available. It's just Google.com that unfortunately, the Iranian government is taking advantage of Google product and using Google Safe Search That's why Google.com actually is not blocked. They enforce a safe search of Google on the entire population of Iran. So meaning if you are in Iran and if you go on Google.com, you wouldn't get access to Google.com. You would get access to the limited version of Google.com, which was created for kids. So safe search is kind of service that Google provided for family if you have a kid and you're concerned that your kids might get access to the i don't know pornography or violent content uh you can set up that safe search and be sure that your kid is protected the iranian government is getting that service and basically enforcing on the entire population of iran so if you are in iran going on google trying to see a video of protest that video is not accessible because Google Safe Search is enabled, is on, on your service. And unfortunately, Google is not doing anything about it. Given the authoritarian nature of the Iranian regime and their really brutal crackdown of the protests, how do you analyze this approach of having kind of a patchwork policy of slowing it down some places, shutting it off some places. How do you explain this? This is more like Ahmadinejad kind of government approach uh, rather than Rouhani's government approach. I mean, we should also remember that during Rouhani, during the protest, they completely shut down the internet for a period of two weeks, actually. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, you're right. But that was basically the first test of national information. That's why they shut down the entire internet on the entire population. That infrastructure, National Information Network or NIN, was not fully operational back then. That's why they fully shut down the internet. 
So what we are seeing is basically two main approach. Imagine that you have a weapon. You can use this weapon in so many different ways. You can put that weapon on automatic mode and within a two seconds, shoot whatever you have. But you can put it on not automatic mode and really target your target, target what you want to shoot. So this is two different approach. Both of them are violating people's rights, but in two different ways. Rohani's approach was more like, I mean, again, if we forget that November internet shutdown, just because the NIN was not fully operational, the weapon it was not fully ready to shoot, right? Yeah, and After the brutality that, was in full view. I mean, they, they killed so many protesters back oh, then course, in 2019. Of course, of course, of course. I'm just focusing on the internet part. You're totally right. I'm just trying to focus on how two different governments using the same weapon of internet as a weapon, mm-hmm. NIN as a weapon, and see what is the difference between these two. The outcome is the same. So look, who was the minister of ICT in Rohan? Azari Jahrami, who had a background of being involved in security service. So mm-hmm. that guy was coming from security service mindset. I don't mean it in a positive way, but if you want to do a job, you need to know how to do the job, right? <laughs> Even if you want to use a weapon and shoot, otherwise you might shoot yourself. What Rohani was doing, it was very organized. It was very, very much organized. The way that they were shutting down the internet, the way that they were slowing down the internet, the way that they were imposing something that we call it throttling. It was very, very much organized. They knew when to do it, how to do it, what is the chain of command, when we need to move from this step to other step. It was very, very much organized. I don't mean it in a positive way. What we are seeing with this new administration, there is no organization. Nothing is being in place in an organized way. More or less you're seeing like a, a mad cat that is running around and trying to, you know, attack the first thing that the cat is seeing, feeling very much afraid. There is no organization. There is nothing being really organized in how they are shutting down the Internet beside the timing every day at 4 p.m. up to midnight. But if you look at the way that they are handling it during Rouhani, they were forcing data centers in Iran to not sell VPSs to the Iranian people. Why? For very simple reason. If you have access to the VPS, virtual private computer in Iran, and also if you have access to VPS outside the country, you can bypass the internet shop. So what Rouhani's government was doing, actually forcing private companies or semi-private companies to not sell VPS to the people during the internet shop. That is not happening now. That is not the case now. So here's a question. This government doesn't want to violate people's rights as hard as Rohani's was violating? Of course no. All of them are the same. But why we are not seeing this exact same uh, process? They are more like Ahmadinejad kind of mindset mm-hmm. rather than a very organized view coming from the security service. Rohani was coming from security service. Azari Jahrami was coming from security service. Rohani's uh, media advisor, he was coming from security service. So you can see what how is it different. 
Amir, you said that during Rouhani, they opted for a complete shutdown because this new kind of internal internet network was not functional. How much money did Rouhani's administration and his communication apparatus spend on completing this project? We don't know exactly how much money they spent, but we know that it was not only a government-backed project. Some of the private companies, some of the ISPs in Iran, they invest in that project because it's also good for them. Because if you are providing a service in Iran for the Iranian people and you are providing your service on top of this infrastructure, your service would be faster and cheaper for your customers because of that policy by the Iranian government. That kind of infrastructure, which is obviously in violation of people's rights, but you would benefit. So they managed to get some of these ISPs to invest, not only by financially investing, but also by putting manpower, their technician, to do the development, to create the infrastructure. So it was kind of collaboration between the government and some of the private companies. What's the involvement of the Revolutionary Guards in this project and ownership of telecommunications? We know that the telecommunication company is owned by IRGC. Actually, they bought that company years ago. So that means they have access to the largest and one of the main telecommunication company in Iran that they have basically access to the largest infrastructure of telecommunication in Iran meaning they can literally do whatever they want to do with their network. For example, there are two companies that is very difficult to uh, find a circumvention tools that is working actually on those companies. One is the, this telecommunication company, and the second one is Iran Cell, a mobile telecommunication company. But usually when you have a circumvention tools that is work on the rest of the network in Iran, these two companies are blocking that uh, circumvention tools as well. So they have a huge role in investment. Many of these ISPs are actually backed by IRGC indirectly. They created multiple companies. And if you follow their paths, uh, you would get finally get to the IRGC. So many of these ISPs, as I said, they invest in NIN. If you look at their roots, they have roots in IRGC. Given the extent of filtering and internet blocking in Iran, VPNs are used to get around filtering of the internet. In the past five years, VPNs have become very profitable commodities. You can buy these VPNs using domestic banking system. It is a common belief among the public that those selling the VPNs are connected also to the regime's security and military apparatus. Yeah, you're right. It's a huge market. And interestingly, as you said, People are paying for those VPNs or, in general, circumvention tools through the Iranian banking channel, which is, if you know, you know, anyone who knows Iran, it would immediately may jump to this conclusion that definitely those companies, they had a tie with the security service, or at least they know someone who is connected to the system, and that's why they can operate freely and use the Iranian banking system. It's obvious that this is the case because otherwise they would immediately come after you and shut down your service 
anyone that even talking about the VPN on Twitter, I know people with the technical knowledge that they were talking about how you can set up your own VPN on Twitter and they got arrested. So obviously, if the level of sensitivity is that high, if you talk about how to create, you are not even selling, you are not even giving a VPN connection to anyone. You just, as a, like a public education, you're selling, this is the way that you can run your own VPN. They are getting arrested. So obviously, if you are running a company and selling VPN using the Iran banking system, obviously they would come after you. So if they are not coming, definitely you have a tie within a government. But the Iranian government has a plan also, has a policy to change that market. So that market is kind of black market, right? But what the Iranian government is want to do is they are working on a project, they call it legal VPN. Using VPN, using circumvention tools, according to the Iranian law, is not illegal. It is legal. You have a right to use uh, circumvention tools. So this project is talking about basically if you are an Iranian and you want to access to the whatever content on Internet that is blocked, you can submit your request. You can register, basically. Go on a portal according to the document leaks by hackers. The name of the portal would be VPN.ir. You would go on VPN.ir and fill out the form. A form is included your legal name, your birthday, your national uh, number, which is like a social security number in the United States, your address, your age, your job, even your gender. And then you have to provide a list of websites or application or content that are blocked and you want to access. So there would be a committee and they would review your application and they make a decision and they would come up and say, for example, okay, Amir Rashidi is an IT man. He needs to access to YouTube because probably there are some useful content for him on YouTube. So here is a VPN for you, Amir Rashidi. You can connect, you can use YouTube with this VPN. But my VPN wouldn't open BBC, wouldn't open CNN, wouldn't open any news uh, media outlet that is blocked because they give me the privilege, they give me the access to only youtube.com. Or you might go there and you say, hey, I'm a journalist. These are my legal information. And I want to access to BBC, to CNN. They might say, yes, we confirm with this VPN provided by the government for you. You can access BBC and CNN, but you cannot access YouTube because we believe you don't need to access YouTube. So that's a legal VPN project that which basically leads to the situation that we don't have this situation anywhere else in the world, even in China. Basically, your access to the Internet would be based on your social class. If you are a teacher, you would access to a certain content of Internet. If you are a worker, your access is different than the teacher. If you are a journalist, your access would be different than the other group of the society. So that would be the future of the internet in Iran. And again, we don't have this kind of access to the internet based on your social class or your gender anywhere in the world. And if they come to pass such a law, anybody who operates outside of the system, it would be considered criminal activity? Yes, that's the main plan. You talked about 
all the ways that Iranian government is shutting down or slowing down or filtering different sites and platforms. What about protest hotspots in Zahedan or in Kurdistan? How does the internet censorship work there? Because I've noticed that uh, sometimes there is a long time lag before we start getting videos in from those places and the videos have become shorter. Does that also have to do with the way that internet has been slowed down so people cannot upload longer videos? That's the result of the way that Iran is shutting down the internet. So mm-hmm. they shut down mobile data first. So if you are protesters doing protests in the street and trying to capture some videos, document violation, with your phone, you don't have access to the internet at the same time to send out those videos. So you need time to go somewhere else and then upload those videos. That's why we are seeing those videos with delay. From the technical perspective, when you see internet disruption or internet shutdown, we expect to receive some really horrifying or really scary news of cracking down of protesters. This is not happening right now. But imagine if right now, I'm able to technically identify internet shutdown or internet disruption in city of Karaj. And still we are not seeing any images or any videos of cracking down on protesters. I would expect to see those images and videos a day after, minimum, right? So that's why you have that delay of receiving documents regarding violation of human rights. There is also an economic angle to the internet shutdown. On October 24th, an association of employers and businesses in Tehran that are heavily dependent on the internet wrote a letter to the Minister of Interior and asked for an end to internet blackouts and disruptions for users. In their letter, they said 2 million people are directly employed in a sector that is fully reliant on the internet and social media. They complain about an 80% loss in revenue in addition to a doubling of the cost of conducting business in this environment. People also do online shopping in Iran. They continue the letter by citing reasons for inadequacy of national information network as a substitute for the internet. What can you tell us about this sector of the economy and the response to the internet blackouts and interruptions and whether this so-called national information network is able or will be able to substitute what people are currently using. That's totally correct. And again, that's one of the main difference between Rouhani's administration and Reis's administration. And in a way that I was trying to explain, they are not organized. They are not really thinking about the consequences of their decision and what would be the impact on economy. During the Rouhani, any time that there was internet shutdown, they would consider businesses. They would provide some kind of services for these businesses. That's correct that this they, they have developed this infrastructure, but this infrastructure is still is a computer network. And they are following the same protocol of any computer network anywhere, no matter if it's a huge, large computer network, which we call it internet, or a smaller version of internet, which we call intranet or NIN. Still is based on TCP/IP. Still is based on all those protocols that everyone are using. 
So when you do internet shutdown and you don't think about that consequences, because the local businesses, they have a website, they are using some services that is hosted outside the country. I mean, mm-hmm. as a user, you wouldn't see. But on the back end updates that you are receiving for your servers, some of the services that you are using, for example, on Google Firebase, some tools like that, or you might use Google API in your service. So when you shut down the internet, you need to think about the behind the scene. It's not all just the website that you have, like Digicolor, but that yeah. Digicolor is using Google API, that Digicolor is using Google Fonts, that Digicolor is using Firebase for the application. Bohani's government was actually conscious of those issues and those consequences. If you look at back, you would see some of the letters leaked that actually Rohani's government sent a letter to the businesses and asked them to submit a list of their IP addresses, the list of the things that they need to have a connection to the internet. And what they've done was something that we would call it white list, created a white list that these white lists are connected to the internet, but the rest are not connected to the internet. We are not seeing something like that happening now with this government. That's why the damage on economy with this type of internet shutdown that the racist government is doing is much higher than the kind of way that Rouhani was doing. This is the difference between these two. And obviously, the damage on the economy now is much higher. So in order for them to be able to fully make this national internet functional, they have to bring also the servers back to Iran, like because I know they have servers, one specific one, iCloud server that's in Germany, Dusseldorf. So do they have to bring the servers back as well? In general sense, you're right. So what actually helped this NIN National Information Network was Trump administration. Before maximum pressure program by Trump, these servers, they were outside the country. Not all of them, most of them. They were outside the country. They were using Amazon cloud services. They were using Digital Ocean cloud services because we haven't had that kind of service in Iran, right? And even if we had, it was not as good as Amazon or as good as Google Cloud or as good as all of these international, I would call them international internet infrastructure. What happened after Trump maximum pressure campaign, all of these companies, they start to overcomply with the sanction laws just because they were afraid of Trump, right? So all of them forced to move inside Iran and using NIN. So basically, Trump didn't think about the consequence of the decision. He was like, yeah, I'm going to help the Iranian people. But at the same time, you actually left them behind. You actually put them in, I would call it, internet prison. As long as you are outside the country, the cost of internet shutdown for the Iranian government is much higher. When you are inside the country, the cost is not as high as you need to connect to the outside world. So they forced to move back in Iran and rely on the national infrastructures, national cloud provider, national hosting service, and everything like that. It's not as expensive in terms of the cost of internet shutdown as before. What happened we saw with the Biden administration that I do believe Biden was kind of trying to fix Trump damage. When he issued general license D2, to provide more access uh, to the international infrastructures, cloud provider, and other services. If we see 
the Iranian again move back, basically migrate back. Basically, we try to reverse what happened. Those servers move back outside the country, be on Google, be on Amazon, be on Digital Kala or whatever cloud provider or whatever services outside the country. We would see the cost of internet shutdown for Iran become much higher than what it is right now. I'm not saying Iran is not going to shut down the internet. They might do anything, right? They might bring even a tank in a street as we saw in China. But our job should be make it costly for the government to do it. And now the ball is in the tech companies' courts, and I hope they start implementing General License D2. And I hope we would see those servers, those international infrastructure outside the country. Amir, who is or what governments and countries are helping the Iranian regime to build this infrastructure? According to the information, public information that we have, for example, the 25 years agreement between Iran and China, another agreement between Iran and Russia, these two countries are helping Iran. There are specific articles in 25 years agreement between Iran and China talking about the internet and IT. According to that agreement, the Chinese government is providing Iran with the AI technology, facial recognition, with the search engine technology, with the messaging app technology, with the even operating system technology. At the beginning of this conversation, I was mentioning that is the last line of defense, that people are not using national applications. So Iran clearly failed on that side of the NIN. Now they are relying on Chinese because Chinese, they have WeChat. WeChat is a good application at the same time doing a very, for the purpose of the Chinese government, very good surveillance. So Iran is heavily relying on that part of it. On the security side, if you read the agreement between Iran and Russian, Iran is relying on Russian for the security on Internet IT. So obviously these two countries, based on these two documents, they are supporting and helping Iranian government to develop NIN. Also, the Iranian regime is using face recognition technology. It actually has used facial recognition technology to identify and punish women who fail to wear the mandatory hijab. Two years ago, actually, the government acknowledged that it was using this technology, but it claimed that it was being used during the pandemic to identify those who were not complying with the mask mandate. So tell us more about this technology and who's providing that. Yes, you're correct. They, they claim they were using it for identifying people who are not wearing a mask in a way that they have to. But I guess it was just one month before these protests and the tragic thing happened to Mahsa, they killed her. Some of Iranian officials, they were saying we are using the exact same system to identify people who are not wearing proper hijab. I mean, proper in a way that they they are describing proper. So we don't know exactly what kind of facial recognition technology they have. We don't know exactly if they developed it inside the country or they are getting it from the Chinese, for example. We don't have that kind of information. But it seems that people are very concerned about it. If you look at some of the videos of protests, you would see, in particular, at first pickup protests, they were attacking cameras around the street because they were concerned of being identified by the facial recognition technology. Unfortunately, we don't know what kind of technology, what kind of algorithm they have. 
And that's basically a side of work that we need researchers to work more on it and see how we can fight with that technology. I'm speaking with Amir Rashidi, the Director of Digital Rights and Security at Mion Group, about internet censorship in Iran. We'll talk more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zazan, and my guest this week is Amir Rashidi, the Director of Digital Rights and Security at Mion Group. I'm speaking with him about internet censorship in Iran. Euronews had a very interesting article about how Iranians are trying so many different VPNs, sometimes 10 at a time, to try to see if they can use the internet. So it seems like that the Iranian government, to a certain extent, has also been able to disrupt VPNs. The first three weeks of the protest, it was almost impossible to get connected to the internet through a VPN or circumvention tool. I mean, Tor was working quite well. Google Outline was not really working. It was blocked immediately as soon as you made the first connection. If you want to talk about the entire population of Iran who are using the internet and they were needing VPNs, I would describe it in a way that imagine you are at the middle of a war and you are in the front line of this war. You are seeing a lot of people who are injured and they need blood. They are losing blood and they need blood. You might say there is doctor here and there is a, some kind of fridge here full of blood, but those banks of blood cannot serve all of the people that you have and they need blood. That was a situation of problem with the VPNs and circumvention tools. Many of them, they were serving a lot of people, even more than they are capable of serving. Tor was serving a lot, Siphon, same. But when you're talking about the entire population of Iran, none of them were in a capacity to serve the entire population. So what we need is actually working on a plan for the future, because this protest is not going to die down here. I do believe we're going to see more protests, maybe not in next couple of months, but this is not going to stop here. As people in Iran, they describe it. They say this is not the final episode, but this is the final season, meaning there are more episodes coming, right? Mm -hmm. What we need is more plan, more investment on VPNs and circumvention tools that is very, very much needed in the future. I just want to quote a waiter in a cafe in Tehran, who told Euronews 
many things have changed. The simplest thing is, of course, the internet. I use a VPN every day. In fact, I'm using 13 VPNs right now. Everyone's phone is like this. This has turned into a system. Even Google was filtered last month. Searching for something on Google, as you said, was filtered. Another young um, student at Tehran University called Daria, which I'm sure is not her real name, she says, after using one VPN for a while, it gets blocked and we switch to another. We need VPN programs even to download a VPN from the internet. I use Telegram and proxy systems to communicate with family. And then another person said she uses five VPNs, but only two of them work. That's unfortunate. It's true. And I have to say something here. What I'm seeing outside the country, unfortunately, is the entire focus of Iranian-American, in particular Iranian-American, who doesn't understand computer networking and internet, is the entire focus is on Starlink. And they believe if people in Iran, they have access to Starlink, that would be the end of the internet connectivity issues in Iran. Starlink is a company that is providing internet through satellites for you. So the promise is no matter where you are, as long as you have access to the equipment that you need to communicate with the satellite, you can have access to the internet. So if you are in Bay Area, Imagine you are in somewhere that, you know, you don't have internet. doesn't matter if you have equipment, you can get access to the internet. If you are in Africa and you don't have the infrastructure, it's enough that you have that equipment get access to the internet. In Iran, when the government is shutting down the internet, that satellite internet is not going to be provided through the government channel. That is going to be provided through the Starlink company, which is owned by Elon Musk. That's a way that people can get access to the internet by having just the equipment that you need to get access to the Starlink. But again, that cannot solve the internet connectivity issue first because Iran is imposing mobile data shutdown. You cannot put that equipment, which is a dish, on your backpack and go to the protest. That's the first issue. Second, Obviously, the Iranian government is not happy and they are not going to let you use it. So if you are using a Starlink and visiting a governmental website, the government can identify you. You are using Starlink because they can see what kind of IP addresses and, you know, other metadata information and you can be identified. So still you need to use a circumvention tools to hide yourself. The problem that I'm seeing, in particular in the United States, within the Iranian-American community, they do believe if you get access to the Starlink satellite internet, the internet connectivity issue would be solved. No, that's not the case. Yes, we do appreciate access to the Starlink. We want it. But we should not see that as a permanent solution for internet connectivity issue in Iran. As I do believe the main investment, the main need, is circumvention tools and VPN. We need to get more circumvention tools. As I described, this is a lot. If you are in a war and you are fighting in the front line of the war, that's your blood. You need to have access to the VPN and then you need to have access to the international infrastructure. That's why it's so important that these tech companies start to implement General License D2 to provide those services for Iranian. These are the first immediate need that we have 
for Iran. Again, as I said, yes, we do appreciate the stalling. We want to have it in Iran, but we should not look at it as a permanent solution for internet connectivity issues. Given the level of censorship, how difficult has it been for the protesters and their allies in Iran to connect with each other? Imagine you are in Bay Area and you want to organize a protest. Someone is going to tell you the only way that you can communicate with your people, with your community, is through a game. You need to use this game and the chat in the game. And that's only way that you can communicate. That's what happened in Iran. So when you see people for organizing themselves, for mobilizing themselves, for communicating themselves, they are migrating on games, not because they want to play a game, because that is the available option to have a communication chat on the game. You see, there is no WhatsApp, there is no Instagram, there is no Google search, there is no email services, nothing is there. Your only option is going on a game and using a chat option on a game. So imagine you are in Bay Area organizing a protest and that's your only option. What would be your life like? If you answer that question, then we can kind of imagine what would the life and communication between the protesters right now look like. But at the same time, it is quite evident that in spite of all these hurdles and obstacles, Iranian protesters have been able to coordinate their action on certain levels. Because when we see a protest happening in one university, we see it simultaneously happening in other universities the same day. So there seems to be some sort of a coordination. I don't know if there is a coordination or not. I used to be a student activist back then in Iran, and we have a really long history of students' activism in Iran and students' rights organization in Iran. So when you have that huge history, you are literally relying on the civil society that still exists, right? That civil society is damaged. Again, using the example of going to war, that civil society might be disabled, might not have a leg, might not, the kidney is not working properly, the heart, you had multiple heart attacks. But that body, that civil society still exists still is working and still is fighting. Because of that strong backbone, you would see how these universities are coming, organizing protests, attacking even the speaker of the government. When he was in Tehran University, no one really let him talk. If you have people who are listening to us right now that they don't know that history, you need to study that history. Because I do believe that history is the key for the future of Iran, that backbone of civil society, women's rights movement. I used to be part of the women's rights movement years ago in Iran. We were fighting for even, even, you know, a day after the revolution, women came out and protest against the mandatory hijab. This is not something new. This has the over 40 years history. So we need to respect that. We need to try to empower that civil society and recognize it. Sometimes I'm seeing outside the country that the way that non-Iranian media are talking about women's rights, it's like we never even heard the word women's rights in Iran. We have a huge history of civil society movement in Iran that needs to be studied, needs to be respected. We need to make sure that whatever we are doing is in direction of empowering 
that civil society. So what you're saying is that the civil society is really the real engine of this uprising and the way this movement has sustained itself in spite of so many losses and horrific attacks on the protesters. Civil society and middle class, yes, definitely. Yeah. Another source of information and propaganda has been Persian-speaking radio and television stations that are using satellite to send their signals into Iran. What has the regime done to disrupt or stop their broadcasts? You know, traditionally they send signal over that signal, which is jamming. It's interesting because, for example, if you want to watch BBC Persian or Iran International or Radio Farda, whatever news media you are talking about, And that particular program you are watching, it has nothing to do with the protests or news in Iran. When they are not reporting about the protests, there is no jamming. As soon as they start reporting on protests, then there is heavily jamming on signals and you wouldn't be able to watch those reports. We talked about what Iranian regime has done and is doing to slow down or block people's access to the Internet. Recently, Intercept got a hold of some leaked documents. And according to the Intercept, part of Iran's data clampdown may be explained through the use of a system called Siam, a web program for remotely manipulating cellular connection made available to Iranian communication regulatory authorities. The details are laid out in a series of internal documents from an Iranian cellular carrier that were obtained by the Intercept. Can you tell us how Siam works? Because as you explained, Iran has favored blunt instruments of state censorship. But now we are seeing that there is more precise and sophisticated ways of trying to interrupt the Internet and block people's access to Internet. It is, but it was no surprise to us. When you are running a telecommunication company, you need to have some kind of services for yourself, for your company internally, to be able to provide that services for the people. That kind of program is not something that is unusual. I mean, the program itself, not the way that they were using You can see every government or every telecommunication company might have that kind of uh, service. For example, there is one function in that service which can turn your internet connection from 3G, 4G, or 5G to 2G, basically slowing down your service. So even in the United States, if you don't pay for your mobile data, your service would be slower. So some function like that probably is being used even here. But there is a huge, big but here. We don't have accountability. We don't have transparency. These are the issues that we have in Iran. Within a context of Iran, when you don't have fair judicial process, when you don't have accountability, when you don't have transparency, when government abuses its power and cracks down on protesters for the basic rights that they are asking for, such tools that is a normal tool in United States or any country become like, again, like a weapon against the Iranian people, against the people who are vulnerable to that kind of service. That's the problem and that's the issue when we talk about it. So there are a couple of functions that are very interesting in this Siam program. One is, as I said, they can turn 
your 5G, 3G, 4G to a 2G connection, which is not only slower, is less secure. They can pass your number to one function and get your location. They can see where you are. They can pass an IP address to another function and see who is connected to that IP address. Imagine you are connected to a VPN and that VPN IP address is, is known to the Iranian government and the Iranian government wants to see who is using that VPN, that particular VPN. They can easily pass that IP address to that function and get a list of Iranian customers that they are actually connecting to that VPN. So when you see all these things and you see the history and the pattern of the Iranian government violating people's rights, so you can see that normal system in a normal country can become like a weapon against the Iranian people in a country that, again, we don't have fair judicial process, we don't have transparency, we don't have accountability, that actually can lead, that kind of service can lead to the death and life situation. According to Intercept, the details of the program reported are drawn largely from two documents contained in the archives. The first is a Persian language user manual for Siam that appears to have originated from the Office of Security of Communication System or OS. CS, a subdivision of Communication Regulatory Authority. And then there is another document produced during a proposed deal with a Spanish telecom contractor, which is an English language manual. So who is that uh, Spanish telecom contractor? We don't know. There are a lot of documents leaked to the Intercept. And as far as I know, there would be follow-up articles. So I, hopefully we get more information in when the story is developing and we have access to more documents to review. But so far, we, that's uh, all we know. Actually, Mortaza, the writer of the article, was with me in one Twitter space and someone asked him a very interesting question. Someone asked, hey, what do you think this is the tool, Siam, that is developed by the Iranian inside the country or it is a tool that they purchase? And he said, we cannot say for sure which one it is, but based on the document that they reviewed, it would be probably uh, something that it was developed by the Iranian inside the country. That is Spanish company. I don't know. We don't have enough information to talk about it, but I hope when Intercept published the following article, we would get more information. Again, according to the Intercept, while much of Iran's surveillance capacity remains shrouded in mystery, details about the Siam program contained in the Oriental which is the cell service in Iran, archive provide a critical window into the type of tools the Iranian government has at its disposal to monitor and control the internet as it confronts these protests. User data accessible through Siam include the customer's father's name, birth certificate number, nationality, address, employer, billing information, location history, including a record of Wi-Fi networks and IP addresses from which the user has connected to the internet. That's correct. That's correct. Because you need to do the mobile registration in Iran. You cannot just buy a mobile phone as a device. You need to register it unless that mobile phone is not working. So if even, even if you are traveling to Iran, and you know you going there with your own mobile phone that the registration of the mobile phone it must be the first thing you do at the airport so when you do register your mobile phone you actually 
handing over all these information you named. And that Siam has that access to the mobile registration database. And so when they pass like a phone number to a function, they can get the entire information of whoever registered that mobile phone. I might use your mobile phone, but if the mobile phone is registered under your name, they're going to receive your information, not my information. But if I myself register my mobile phone, the mobile phone that I'm using, then the register information would be mine and they're going to get the information that is my information. Do you talk to people inside Iran? Do they ask you for advice and what to do and what not to do? Yes. Every day I'm receiving around 20, 30 rapid response requests from people inside the country. And there are different kind of requests from the request of how is if like someone discover a new messaging app, is it safe or not? Someone receiving a file, is it safe or not? Someone needs a VPN, what, where can I get the safe VPN? Someone is getting arrested and the family member are concerned about the information that is in the phone of person who got arrested. So there are a couple of different, so many different questions that I'm receiving from people in Iran. And as I said, it's between 20, 30 requests per day. Amir Rashidi is the director of Digital Rights and Security at Mion Group. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Bomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.